Hi everyone, Pastor Michael here, and I want to thank you for tuning in to our sermon podcast. I want to encourage you to use this resource in addition to, and not in place, of belonging to a local church body as you grow in your faith. If this sermon is a blessing, would you consider giving back to Springs Church? You could do that by giving on the app or by visiting the gift tab on our website at springs.church. I pray this sermon increases your passion for Christ and helps you grow in your walk with God. Oh, morning, Springs Church. Good to see everyone at this 11 o'clock service. Uh, I'm going to get right into it today because we got a lot of ground that we're going to be covering. This will be my last week that I'm going to be speaking out of Genesis chapter 3. Um, and we'll get into that in a moment. But the title of my message this morning is Security Breeds Intimacy. Security breeds intimacy, and you'll understand what I mean when we get into it in a few minutes together. Amen? Let me just say a quick word of prayer. Father, I just pray for your grace. Lord, there's a lot of ground to cover today, but it's not about just getting through information. There is a revelation in your word that you want to give to your people, and that revelation only comes through the anointing of the Spirit of God. Father, we honor the blood today through communion, but I take a moment after we have honored the blood to honor the Spirit of God. To say, Holy Spirit, you are the one that has been bound to lead us into all truth. So I ask that you would do that now. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, the last couple of weeks, I have been sharing about the topic of shame when it comes to our relationship with God. And the trauma we experience by being seen or observed by God or by others or even by ourselves. We also discussed the proper response to a timely word from God. And we talked about how we should respond when God gives to us a promise or he begins to open up to us again the majesty, the glory, the power, how much hope is in the gospel. Right? Like Daniel and Nehemiah, we should be driven to the place of prayer and fasting. But we will never remain in the place of prayer and we will never have the courage to be able to take the steps of action that God reveals to us through prayer if we don't first have confidence in God and confidence in his word. See, before we can actually grow in our confidence with the Lord, we first actually need to understand why it is that we don't trust and believe him in the first place. And we've been speaking about that out of Genesis chapter 3. In fact, let me read out of the text that we've been going through. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And let me begin. In the NIV, it says this. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? Any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will surely die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are going to be open and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, I'm going to begin with just a little bit of a review from last week and then get into the meat of what we're going to be talking about today. But I want us to remember that at the fall of man, we had said that a lie came into the human nature. Not just a lie, but a deep mistrust in the character and the judgments of God. The, like the original temptation from Satan with Eve, uh, we believe that we actually know what is good and evil. And, and this plays out, this faulty understanding plays out in so many different areas of our lives where we think we know what is best for us only to find out later on we actually do not. But one of the biggest places that this faulty perspective, this faulty idea of knowing good and evil plays out the most is in the fact that we no longer believe that God is good. And because we don't trust that God is good, we don't trust that God is loving. We think that we are more loving than God. And because of that, it has created this unwillingness to be confident in God and dependent on our relationship with the Lord. Think about this for a second. At the core of all of us, of all of who we are, there is this belief deep down inside that God is not good and that we are more loving than God. And that belief has caused us to experience brokenness in three major areas and places of vulnerabilities in our walks with the Lord. And I'm going to put them up on the screen. And you tell me if this is not part of our human nature. Number one, I want you to see this. Because of this belief inside of us, we will not trust God. We do not believe that he's good. We think that we are more loving than him. So we are always mad. We are always disappointed. We're always frustrated about life because it's never going the way we think it should be going. We think we know better than God. We think we are more loving than God. So we look at our lives and we say, man, if I was in control of all this, this is how I'd be doing it. This is not the way I'd be doing it. I wouldn't be going through this pain. I wouldn't be dealing with this issue. I wouldn't be walking through this situation. I wouldn't have to trust God financially in this place. I know better than he does. And because I know better than he does, I'm upset and I'm frustrated. And I can sense that brokenness inside of my own heart. Number two. We will not trust God, therefore we refuse to worship him. So we live our lives worshiping other things like our careers or our family, our ministry, our money, our talent, popularity on social media, whatever it is. We worship other things, but because God is the only one who is infinite and eternal, those things are constantly failing us and falling apart because they are just finite and vulnerable to the seasons of life. 
And because what we worship is always failing us, we are incredibly insecure. Number three, because we don't trust God, because of this lie that's in our damning nature, this place that we believe that we're more loving than the Lord, we won't trust God, so we spend all our time trying to cover up our nakedness, but no matter how hard we try to hide from being seen by God, or even by ourselves, we don't want to know what's really inside of here. We always feel ashamed, and we always feel rejected. So let me take those three, condense them, and put them up on the screen so you can see them on one slide. We don't trust God, so we're depressed, frustrated, or disappointed about our lives. We don't trust God, so we worship wrong things that makes us insecure. We don't trust God, so we try to cover up our nakedness, but we always feel ashamed. These three things is what the Bible talks about when it talks about spiritual death. These are the dynamics of what the Bible calls spiritual death. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree, and this place where we no longer believe in the goodness of God entered into who we are, these areas of brokenness became a reality for every one of our lives. Because of this spiritual death, the anger, the disappointment, the insecurity, the shame, the frustration will not allow us to be confident in God's promises or in God's word. But Genesis chapter 3 shows us through the story of Adam and Eve that our brokenness and that these dynamics of spiritual death can be healed through the act of repentance. Repentance. Oh, Pastor Michael, don't use that word. Because every time I repent, I feel more terrible and more shame than when I started because I'm constantly looking at all the things that I am doing wrong. But remember what 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, and I'll put it up on the screen. Are you ready? 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance shouldn't be leading to more guilt and more shame. Repentance is supposed to be leading to salvation, to healing, to no regrets. And if salvation is not doing that, it's because, or repentance is not doing that, it's because we are doing it wrong. Now that's all just review from the last couple of weeks that I'm just trying to catch us up to. But today what we're going to do is actually ask two questions that we're going to begin to open up this topic and this understanding of the fall, our mistrust in God, and our need of repentance so we can really understand what it is that God is calling us to in our relationships with him. Number one, the first question we're going to ask today and we're going to begin to answer is this. What is repentance? What is it? And number two... How do we practice repentance and confession in our relationship with the Lord? Number one, what is repentance? Think about it. Remember, these dynamics of spiritual death can only be healed so that we have absolute confidence in God and in his promises for our lives through repentance. But we got to know what it is if we're going to actually be able to do it. And to truly understand what it is, we have to understand a little bit more of how our, our, our hearts operate, especially in our relationship with the Lord. See, so many of us think that we could just move past our brokenness by hiding from it. 
So we do one of two things. Either we no longer choose to acknowledge it, or we make excuses for it. But neither of those things ever work. Why? Well, I put up this quote last week, and I want you to see it again. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Carl Menninger, the psychologist, he says this. He says, if you continue to live under the shadow of unacknowledged and unatoned for guilt, listen to this, it will cause you to continue to hate yourself and not trust God. Okay, but the moment you accept your guilt and sinfulness, the possibility of radical freedom and healing opens up. Shame, guilt, insecurity, disappointment, frustration, all of our brokenness doesn't go away because we choose not to acknowledge it. It doesn't go away by just trying to make excuses for it. It doesn't go away just because we try to hide from it. In fact, subconsciously, without us even knowing it, it begins to get stronger inside of us and it begins to play out in so many different areas of our lives. The only way to find healing from these things is they have to be brought out into the light. They have to be brought, they have to be exposed. In fact, look at what God says in Genesis chapter three. Let me read it to you again, three verses eight through 11. He said, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you're naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God called to Adam and said, where are you? Now remember from last week, we said that God wasn't asking Adam these questions because he needed information. God was actually counseling Adam. And he was trying to get him to see and to understand what was going on inside of his own heart. And how did Adam respond? What did he say? He said, I was hiding. Why? Because he was afraid. Notice he wasn't hiding because he had sinned. He was hiding because he was scared. And then what did God say next? He says, have you eaten from the tree that I command you? Now notice God did not say, have you eaten from the tree that you were commanded not to eat from? He says, no, 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 no. Have you eaten from the tree that I, I from my lips, my mouth commanded you not to actually eat from? It wasn't just a sign that was posted in the garden like no trespassing. It was something between you and me. I spoke those words. You heard them from my mouth. Now what in the world is God doing? He's trying to get Adam to look past just the consequences and the symptoms of his sin. And to be able to see that his sin is not just a violation against the law. It's a violation against a relationship. It's a violation against God and his heart himself. I want you to write this down because it's so important. There is a difference between repentance and remorse. Remorse is feeling bad about the pain and the consequences that sin causes you. But repentance is the acknowledgement and the sorrow of sin itself and what it actually reveals about our relationship with God. Let me try to explain it with an example. I was away this last week with a big work day with the elders. 
And in this workday, we were sitting down and we were talking about all the major needs that are happening in the congregation. And somehow we ended up on the topic of marriage. And as we started talking about marriage, I had made the comment that in my experience, that most people actually don't begin looking for help for their marriages until they're in a code red situation. Normally what happens is one of the spouses gets to the point where they become distant or they become cold or they become cruel. And, and it gets to the place where the other spouse finally hits their limit of how much they can actually take. So they finally get enough courage or they hit just their limit where they start packing all of their stuff. They put it all into a bag and they're beginning to move out. They're saying, I'm done, I'm finished, I'm gonna leave. We're, we're gonna begin to separate. And, and as soon as that takes place, that's where people begin to reach out to me. That's, that's where they call the pastor. And they call me up and it could be like 10 o'clock at night and it would be like the person who, or the, the spouse that was cold and distant will get on the phone and begin to say, Pastor Michael, Pastor Michael, you can't believe this. My marriage is on the rocks. We are in some serious trouble. There was no warning signs. I never saw this coming, but she's in the process of leaving the house and we need help right at this moment. She said she would come and talk with you. You're the only one that she'll come and talk with. She likes your humor. She likes the way you preach. She likes, so we need to come in. We need to find you right now. In fact, in fact, give me your address. We'll be there in like 15 minutes. It's 10 o'clock at night. And I'm thinking to myself, you come here to this house. I'll tell you what. Now my marriage is in a code red situation. So I tell them on the phone, no, 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 that, that's not going to work. No problem. No problem. We'll be in your office 8 o'clock tomorrow. Well, I got to drop my kids off at school. No problem. No problem. We'll be there tomorrow. Just give us a time. Well, I got some meetings I got to do. In fact, I'm two or three weeks. Okay, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to clear off my schedule this week because it really sounds like an emergency. So I clear off my schedule. Everybody gets into a room. And the spouse that was offended, the spouse that was hurt, she speaks first. And she always speaks about what he was doing, the coldness, the distance, the cruelty. That goes on for 20, 30, 40 minutes, 60 minutes. And then when she finally shares everything that she was sharing, I kind of turn to the other spouse and we kind of glare into each other's face for a moment. And this is the crazy part that nobody would expect. But after my years of ministry, I'm learning that seven out of 10 times, eight out of 10 times, this is what happens next. The spouse that's cold, the spouse that's distant, the spouse that's cruel, they begin to agree with the other spouse. They say, it's true, and they start crying. Sometimes they start just weeping in my office. They start confessing, they start apologizing, and they start saying it's gonna change. Now, when I was younger, this scenario would play out over and over and over again in different marriages, and I thought, I thought that if the spouse that was cold or distant or cruel showed some type of emotion, if they cried, if they confessed, if they apologized, then I had thought that they were being sincere and I thought things were going to change and the marriage was going to be healed. And after years and years of ministry, I have learned that that is not the case. See, repentance, it frees, it heals, but remorse enslaves and they're really hard to tell the difference from each other. It's not easy to know which one is actually which. See, in repentance, the offender looks at the offended. And they begin to say, man, look at what I am doing to them. 
Look at how much they have given to me. Look how patient they have been. Look how much they have prayed for me. And look at what I have now done in return. See, what happens when someone actually repents is they see that the sin hurt the other person. That it broke something in the relationship. That it's personal. And all of the coldness, the divisiveness, the lack of love, the self-absorption, it gets exposed for what it truly is. The person begins to see these things aren't just wrong. Get this, they're horrific. They're an enemy to my marriage. They're an enemy to my spouse. They're an enemy to my own life. But when it's just remorse and it's not repentance, you're not sorry about the sin or the damage to the relationship. You're sorry about the disgrace. And remorse, you're not sorry for what you've done to your spouse. You're sorry about what the whole situation is doing to you. The disgrace you're going to experience when your spouse leaves. The pain and the inconvenience of going through the divorce. The fact that you might even lose the house. And there's a difference. See, when you experience remorse, it makes you desperate, but it makes you desperate for all the wrong reasons. Right? You, you think to yourself, I'll do anything I need to do just to finally get out of all the consequences of my own sin. Which means you never saw what you were doing as something horrific. You never saw what you were doing as something as an enemy inside of your heart or inside of your own life. In fact, most of the time you actually look at the other person and you think that they're the one that's being slightly unreasonable. But because you don't realize it's really an enemy, what you do is you begin to suppress it. You begin to cover it. You begin to even excuse it. You do everything you can. You think to yourself, I'll do what I need to do to be able to fix the whole situation, but it never got to the depth of where it needed to go. You never truly surrendered it, and in time, it always begins to grow back. But when God leads us to true repentance which is an incredible, liberating, and healing experience, the Lord begins to show us how vile our sin actually is. He shows us that our sin isn't just things that we do wrong. No, 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 no. He shows us that our sin is actually a personal act against Him and against His very character and His very nature. See, this is what you need to understand. Sin, no matter how it manifests in our lives, always comes about because deep inside of us, from the very fall, we do not believe that God is good and we think we are more loving than God. So we think we know what is best for our lives. We think we know what's going to make us happy. So we begin to step out of God's order and what he's called us to do and the things that he's given to us of his own character and begin to make independent decisions apart from him. That's what sin is. It's not just wrong things. It's deep down. I don't believe that God is good. I don't trust. If I forgive this person like God is calling me to forgive, then it gives them another opportunity to hurt me. And God doesn't seem to understand that. So I'm not going to forgive them because God is not good and God doesn't know how my life should go. 
I believe this lust is going to be more satisfying than purity. Right? I believe that having a big savings account and being greedy is the way to feel more at peace in my life than trusting God with my finances and giving what God has called me to give to his church and to his people. Sin always comes back to this root deep inside of our own hearts that we really don't trust that God is good. Sin is assassination on the goodness and character of God. And if you don't see that, if you don't understand that, if it's just some wrong things or it's just some remorse where you're trying your best to clean up the consequences without realizing what's actually going on in your relationship with the Lord, if you don't get that, where there's real repentance and surrender to the Holy Spirit and honest confession that God, I really don't trust you, that deep in my heart I don't believe that you are as loving as you say you are, if you don't get to that level with God, then you will live a life filled with insecurity, filled with disappointment, filled with fear, filled with shame, filled with all types of unacknowledged guilt that is working inside of you subconsciously and it is eating you up inside, in your emotions, in your mind, in your physical well-being, within your spirit. See, repentance is the only true way where true brokenness could be healed. But it's more than just remorse. It's more than just things that we do wrong. Real repentance gets to the root that God, you are not good. You are not good. And I do not trust you. That's what repentance actually is. Now, here's the last question. We're going to close on this, but I got a lot to go over, so we're not closing too quick. If that's what repentance is, then how in the world do we actually practice repentance and confession in our relationship with the Lord? How do we actually do this, Pastor Michael? Well, I'm going to put this up on the screen, and I want you to see this, and I want you to understand it. Real repentance happens organically. Ready for this? when we understand and acknowledge the security of God's love. You cannot repent. You cannot get to that depth of your heart if you don't know how secure you are in your relationship with the Lord. So here's the other question that we have to begin to dive into. How in the world has God created the security that we need in our relationship with him to be able to truly repent and go to the depths of our heart where we could really surrender to the Holy Spirit? Well, with that, let me pull out this whiteboard, and I'm going to try to do a little bit of a teaching today. I've taught on this before, but I went through it with the, the staff this last week, and they said, you have to do this. You have to speak this all the way out with the rest of the church. So let me put it up here. Let me make sure, screen-wise, I'll put it in the middle so everyone can see where I'm at. Everyone can see it. Okay. Okay. Let's begin at the very beginning. And I want you to track with me because I'm going to go through all of this and I'm going to bring it all the way back to how we actually repent, how it actually works out in our own lives, okay? Let's start at the very beginning. Let's start at creation where God actually created man. And God comes and he creates Adam and Eve. Now, now remember, Adam and Eve, and this is important, are finite beings. They are not eternal like God. They have a beginning and they are finite. 
right? God has no beginning. He has no end. He's infinite. So here's the question that the Trinity deals with at the very beginning of creating mankind. And this is the question. How does a God who is infinite, right? He has no beginning. He has no end. He's so magnificent. He's so powerful that literally there's no way of even being able to contain him in books or even be able to speak about him in a way. The Bible says that even in the Old Testament, if someone would see him, but face to face, their minds would just explode. It was just too much. So how in the world does an infinite God like this begin to create a relationship with a finite man? Where do you even start? What do you say? How do you do this? How, how in the world do you get the type of intimacy that God desired from the very beginning, the relationship that he wanted from the very start? So God within the Trinity, as he creates man, comes up with a plan. And this was the plan. This is how they were gonna begin to do it. They were gonna create what the Bible calls a covenant. This is so important. And in this covenant, they were going to begin to define who they were and how the relationship would work. So what God did is he had two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God created a covenant with mankind to define how the relationship was going to begin to operate, to show them how they were going to have intimacy with each other. So God comes back and says, this is how it's going to work. On your side of the relationship, we're going to make this contract with each other. You give to me perfect, personal, Perpetual obedience. Just don't eat of this one tree that I command you. That's it. You give it to me perpetually every single day. And I'm going to give to you my presence, my power, my protection, and my provision. You do this, and every day that you do that, I will be bound under a covenantal agreement, relationship with each other, to give you my presence, my power, my protection, and my provision. Oh my gosh. I mean, could you imagine the type of intimacy that this now creates? Every day that Adam and Eve didn't eat of the tree, they were walking around in the garden completely naked. God could see all of them, every single part of them all that they are, all that they've ever been. And they didn't have to hide it from God because they knew as long as we don't eat of that tree and we give God in this relationship, his presence, his power, his protection, his provision is there. We can be completely naked in his presence. It doesn't matter because he's always going to give us his power, his protection, and his provision. We're going to get up every single day, and we're not going to have to work for our food. It's going to come right off of the trees. The water is going to spring up out of the ground. We're going to be protected. None of the animals are going to have any animosity against us to try to eat us or destroy us. We're under the protection of God. And at 3 o'clock, every day on the dot, the presence of God comes down, and we walk in the garden together. Now, we don't realize it, but we do this exact same thing in our relationships with each other, especially when we get married. What is a marriage? It's a covenantal relationship on the grounds of a contractual legally binding agreement that creates the intimacy that we're looking for between two people to be able to come one. That's exactly what it is, which is why we take what in a marriage? We take vows. 
What are the vows? The terms of the relationship. They describe the relationship. So we sit at an altar together and we say, hey, baby. I just want you to know, for richer or for poor, I'm in it. The relationship will never change. I vow and made a covenant and a commitment. And then the other one goes, baby, baby. I just want you to know, for richer or for poor, I too am in it. Now, I know those vows don't mean much in our day and age, but there was a time where maybe I would lose my job. My wife didn't know. I, I get fired, and I'd come home, and we've already used up all our savings, and we sent one kid to college, took the second mortgage on the house, and things aren't looking too good. <laughs> and I'd walk in that door, but if I had this vow and this covenantal relationship with my wife, I didn't have to hide the fact that I lost my job because she has agreed under a legally binding contract with me that it's for richer or for poor. So I could come in and I could bear my heart. Honey, I lost my job. I don't have to hide it from you. I don't have, but guess what? Richer or for poor. Honey, we're also losing the house. But we got each other. We sit at that altar. What do we say? For sickness or for health. Which means when I go out and I take a motorcycle ride, and if I would ever get hit or whatever, and they say, hey, we got to amputate your legs, and you're going to live in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. When I'm sitting in that hospital bed, because my wife took a vacation with her friends to the Caribbean, and she's on her way back, I'm not sitting there wondering if my wife is still going to be with me. I'm not sitting there wondering if we're still going to have a relationship. I'm not sitting there wondering if she's going to reject me, because we took a vow, we made a covenant, where what did we say? For sickness or for health. What does it do? It creates intimacy and peace and rest in the relationship, which is what God was after with Adam and Eve, that they would be at peace, that they would be at rest, that they can know this type of intimacy with him. That's what it was all about from the very beginning. But the stupid serpent comes into the picture and he screws it all up. What does he say? Hey, God didn't really say you shouldn't eat from the tree. You, you could take a little bit. You'll just know good and evil and whatever. So what happens? Adam and Eve break the covenant. And God is no longer obligated to give him his presence, his power, his protection, his provision. And for the first time in mankind, what happens? The human heart comes into a place of unrest, of fear, of feeling like they're rejected because this is no longer there and feeling like they have to hide from God and from each other. They don't feel like they're enough, which they're not because the covenant is broken and all the brokenness comes into humanity. We no longer trust God anymore because we're not certain that his power, his provision, his protection, and his presence is gonna be with us. So now we're worshiping other things because we don't think we could truly worship God. Now we're doing everything we can, right? Because we're frustrated about our lives because it's not going the way that we want it to go. We're trying to hide and cover up all the things that we're doing wrong because we can never be intimate or, or just exposed in the presence of God. But we always feel ashamed and rejected. All of this came in because of the broken covenant. This all came into the human heart. So what does God do? Well, I don't have time to get into all of it. But for the rest of the whole Old Testament, all of it, God tries to make covenant with man again and again and again. You give to me, 
perfect personal perpetual obedience. I'll give you my presence, my power, my protection, my provision, and we'll have intimacy with each other. You give to me this, I'll give you to that. We will agree upon it. We will make our vows and we will have this relationship. And time and time again, all through the Old Testament, man keeps breaking the covenant. He tries it with Davidic covenants. He tries it with Levitical covenants. He tries it with covenants of salt. He tries it with Noahic covenants, Abrahamic covenants. Try, 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 until he finally gets all the way to what we call the Mosaic covenant. What is the Mosaic covenant? The Mosaic covenant is the same thing that he made with Adam in the garden. Just give me perfect personal perpetual obedience. Ten things. Just follow ten simple rules for your lives. And what am I going to give to you? My presence, my power, my protection, my provision. You're going to get all of me. And we're going to be in a covenant, legally binding, contractual relationship through the high courts of heaven. You're going to know that I'm always with you. Your heart's going to be at peace. You're going to be able to have intimacy with me. You'll never be rejected and you can always come into my presence all you got to do are the 10 things and what did Israel say that's it guys guys we could do this we could do this it's just 10 the first four are just God the other six we just got to get we got to get better with each other but we could do it we can do, so they all gather together, and what do they do? They come back to Moses and says, we will do everything that God has said. We will give to him perfect personal perpetual obedience. And it lasted like three days. <laughs> and they break the covenant all over again. So up to this point, it looks hopeless. It doesn't look like we'll ever know true intimacy with God. It never looks like we'll ever be healed of all these areas of brokenness where we don't trust God, where we can't open our hearts to real repentance and get to the depth of what's going on inside of here. It looks utterly hopeless. Ah. But God had a plan. Even before creation took place, the Trinity actually gets together. And it's shown all through different passages in Scripture, in the book of Psalms, many of the prophets, but one of the places that is shown most clearly is in the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, the Trinity have a conversation. Isaiah is actually brought into a conversation outside of time itself between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to paraphrase the conversation, so don't quote me as if this is exactly what the Bible says. Then I'll put the Scripture up on the screen so you can see it yourself. But in this conversation... God the Father turns to the Son and the Holy Spirit, to all of them, to them together, and they say, listen, we're going to create man. We're going to try to make a covenant with him so that we can have real intimacy. We're going to say, give us perfect personal perpetual obedience, give us, and we'll give you your power, your presence, your, uh, your protection, and your provision. But man's going to break the covenant, and it's not going to lead to a place of intimacy. It's going to lead to a deeper place of brokenness. And man's going to run from us and is going to hide for us. But the father turns to the son and says, but you, you can go. And you could become a man. And you and I could go into the covenant relationship and the type of intimacy that I have desired to have with my creation for all of eternity. You and I could do it together. You give to me perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, all of it, and I'll give you my presence, my power, my protection, my provision, and we will have the intimacy that I have been looking for with my creation. You become the creation, and we do it with each other. But there's one last thing that I want it to be agreed upon. As part of your, 
your work of personal perpetual obedience is you need to go to the cross and you're going to have to die for all of mankind so I have a way to be able to redeem them so I don't lose them for all of eternity. And the Father and Son agree to this. Right? Look at Isaiah chapter 42. Let me bring it up on the screen and show it to you. Isaiah 42 says this. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering flask and a wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter. Oh, I love that. Or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. This is what the God, the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads them from earth, with, from what it springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. Listen, to look what he says. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles. Right here, God the Father said, we do the covenant together, and I'm going to hold your hand. You go down to this earth and give me perfect personal perpetual obedience, and I'm going to hold your hand. That's why when Jesus was literally brought to a brow of a hill, and they tried to throw him off, what did he do? He walks right through the people as if they didn't even exist. Why? Because the Father was holding his hand. Because they were in covenant with each other. God's saying, listen to me. When you give me perfect personal perpetual abuse, my protection and my provision is on your life. I'm leading you. I'm directing you. That's why Jesus was able to say when there wasn't enough food, don't worry, guys. I know you want to go out and get more bread. But my Father in heaven, we're in a covenant relationship together. And if we need this food to be able to feed people, my Father is going to be able to make a way. That's why Jesus was able to say, foxes have holes and birds have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head and he didn't say it freaking out like hey John get a charity drive going because I need a house that's not what he was doing he said I'm in covenant so what I need God's provision for my life I'm going to find it because God's going to provide it his power, his protection, his provision all of it has been sealed because every day I'm giving him perfect personal perpetual obedience Every day I wake up, and I don't do my will, but only what I see my Father in heaven do. I fulfill every term of the agreement that we have together. Now, just a sidebar, because someone asked me a question this other week. And they said, Pastor Michael, well, how do you explain the prosperity gospel? Because the prosperity gospel actually twists this. And I say all the time, listen, this is so liberating and so freeing that the enemy had to make a counterfeit to scare all of us from embracing it. And the way he did it was through the prosperity gospel. Because the prosperity gospel says that God is in covenant with his son and with you to give you jumbo jets, to give you the biggest house you can have, to make you healthy and wealthy. That's not what God's protection, provision in his presence and power is about. That's not what he agreed upon. That's not his heart. That's not in the covenant. He said, I'll provide for you, but you might not get the jumbo jet to go fly wherever you want on the weekends. Amen? Where am I? All right. Jesus lives this covenant out perfectly. He has real intimacy with the Father. He says it was so deep in such a union with him that he was in the Father and the Father was in him. There was nothing hidden in his life from the Father and nothing from the Father that was hidden from him. But get this. 
at the end of fulfilling every term and condition that Jesus was told to do so that this covenant would remain, at the very last piece of it where he was going to have to go to a cross, Jesus comes back and after giving everything the Father has asked, before he does this one last act of obedience, he prays a prayer called the High Priestly Prayer in John chapter 17. And in John chapter 17, I want you to see this. This is important. I'll put it up on the screen. John chapter 17 says this, starting in verse 4 through 5. My prayer is not for them alone. Oh, wait, let me put it on. I brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Now watch this. He said, I finished the work. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory we had before the world began. And then he jumps down in verse 20. He says, I finished all the work. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. In you, I in them and you in me, so that we, we may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. Now, verse 24, this is important. Father, I want... In the NIV, it says, I want. In ESV, it says, I desire. But when you get into the original Greek, that language that Jesus is using in this high priestly prayer is not a subservient to a master making a wish. It's covenantal language. It's two equals making a term and an agreement with each other. When he says he wants, he's not saying this is negotiable or would you think about this or any of that. He says, no, 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 no. For me to finish the last act of personal obedience that you've asked of me and seal this covenant, you have to now agree to one more term and condition on my side. You gave me your presence, your power, your protection, your provision, but there's one more thing that I want. What is the thing that Jesus wanted? Are you ready? I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Where was Jesus? He was in covenant relationship with the Father. He was in complete security with the Father. He was in covenant. He says, everybody who believes in me, Father, you got to agree to that they come into this covenant as well. That they get everything that you gave to me. And it doesn't matter if they have good days or bad days. Doesn't matter if they prayed a week straight or they missed their prayer time because they got busy. Doesn't matter if they fast three times a month or they choose or they didn't or messed up or didn't fast. Whatever it is, wherever they are, you have to promise that if they put their faith in me, they've really come to me. I'm not talking about people that haven't come to Jesus. They've really come to me. They put faith in me. You have to give them your presence, your power, your protection, and your provision as well. They get all of it. And you can never take it away. You can never remove it. You can never pull it away from their own lives. And Hebrews actually goes on and says that when Jesus did this, when they made this final covenant with each other, that he took the covenant and he actually made it a testament. He made it a last will and testament where the testator dies and the will begins to go in effect. When you make a will, this is important, you could change it all you want until you die. But if you die and you're the testator who made the will, the will goes into effect and it's unchangeable. The Bible says that the covenant was actually a testament, meaning that when Jesus shed his blood by putting this last term in agreement into the covenant, it became a testament, which means it's legally activated under the high courts of heaven and it's unchangeable no matter how you perform if you're coming to Jesus. Oh my gosh! 
Now, why is this so important? Why do we need to understand this? Why does this go back to the place of repentance? Well, let me show it to you, and then I'm going to begin to close, and I have five minutes, so you're just going to have to deal with it, or you can leave. Here we go. Here we go. The reason God had to do this and the reason he brought us into this covenantal relationship with him is because humankind constantly, because of the fall, is going like this. We vacillate. There are some days we feel like we're on the top of the mountain. There are some days we feel like we're, we literally have the mountain on top of us. And we vacillate even when we're doing a good job. Even when we think we've done everything right, we still feel like junk sometimes. We still feel like we've blown it. And we needed something that was going to create a security in our relationship with God. That when we vacillate, we could still be intimate with him. We could still go into his presence and bear our hearts and bear our souls. We needed something that when we do something wrong and the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes on us, that we feel secure enough to run towards God and not run away from God. That's what we need. And it can only be done through a covenant. But the covenant couldn't be made with us because we'll never be able to pull it off. And God tried. He made it with his son. That's why when Jesus is on the cross, what does he say? He says, it is finished. I did it all. Every term, every condition, I fulfilled it. I didn't fudge on one thing. I gave to God perfect personal perpetual obedience. So how do we know that God agreed to this covenant? The Father, oh, I wish I had hours today, but I don't, right? How do we know? Because Jesus was raised to life. If the covenant wasn't agreed upon by the Father, he would have stayed in the grave. That's why once a year back in the Old Testament, they had a thing called the Day of Atonement. And in the Day of Atonement, the tabernacle, which had two compartments, the holy of holies and the holy place. In this back compartment was the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody was allowed back in that back compartment except once a year. Once a year, the high priest would go in after all the people would make a sacrifice to God. And he would take the blood of the sacrifice and go into the holy of holies. The sacrifice was a patch job to the covenant. What the sacrifice said is that if God accepts this, we get one more year of God being with us. So what did all the people do? They lined up out of their tents. They came out and they gathered around on the day of atonement. And they watched as the high priest took the sacrifice, passed the holy place into the holy of holies. What were the people watching? I mean, everything stopped. Millions of people came out and watched this. What were they watching for? They wanted to see whether or not the high priest came back out. Because if the sacrifice wasn't acceptable to God, God would strike the high priest dead in the Holy of Holies. And the people, God wasn't going to go with them for the next year. So they sat there and they watched on the edge of their seats. And when the high priest came out, they knew that God would still be with them. And they began to sing and shout and rejoice. When Jesus went into that tomb, I'm going to tell you every angel, every principality, and every demon was on the edge of their seat. And what were they watching for? They wanted to see if he was going to come back out. 
Because if he came back out, the covenant was accepted. And that means that the Father has agreed. And it's unchangeable. Unchangeable. They watched it. Now, I am done. I am done. I lied. Last thing. Pastor Michael, that's amazing. But how do I know God will give me his presence, his power, his protection? You, you say Jesus and all these things, but can you give me one more example to really nail this home? I'll give you one more. In the book of Genesis, God shows up and he finds a man named Abraham. He comes to this man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, you and I are going to go into a covenant together. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to multiply your seed like the stars in the heaven. And I'm going to give you the land of Canaan for your people. Years and years and years go by. And you know the story. Abraham and Sarah never have a kid. And he, he battles through so much. And he finally gets to a place where he's questioning in his heart, how do I know that God's going to be faithful, that he's going to give to me what he said he was going to give to me? And him and God get into this conversation and say, God, how do I know? God was trying to reaffirm it again. He says, how do I know? And God comes back this time and he gives him an answer. You know what God says? He says, I want you to go get a bull. I want you to go get a goat, a sheep, a little pigeon, and I want you to slice them in half. And I want you to put them on the ground and I want their halves to be on opposite ends of each other. I want you to make an aisle. That's what I want to do. And Abraham knew what that meant. Because back in Abraham's day, during the Mesopotamian times, when you went into a covenant with another person, where there were terms and agreements that were made between each other, you cut an animal in half. And what you did is you walked through the two halves with the other person that you were making a covenant with, and it was a pledge that if I default on the covenant, you cut me in half like one of these animals. So what is Abraham thinking? I know that God is going to be faithful to do what he said because I'm going to go into a covenant with him. He's going to tell me what he wants from me, and he's going to tell me what he's going to do. He's going to reestablish the promise again, and then we'll walk through it together. And as long as I do whatever God wants me to do, the perfect personal perpetual obedience, he'll give me the promise, and I know it will be secure. So Abraham's just sitting there, and he's getting all excited. He's got everything. The, the, the birds of prey come down. He moves them all off the, the sacrifices. And then he's sitting there, and he's getting ready. And then what does God do? This is amazing. God takes, Adam, takes Abraham out, puts him asleep. See, God wasn't going to make a covenant with Abraham because Abraham couldn't keep it. So he puts him asleep, and he takes him out of it completely. And the Bible says a burning torch... And, and a flaming, uh, whatever it was, a flaming coal, walk through the covenant together. The father and the son make it with each other on behalf of Abraham. You know what God was saying? Abraham, you could be sure that I'm going to do what I said I'm going to do because I'm going to make a covenant relationship, not with you, but with my son. And you've been taken out of it. You only come into it by faith. You believe it and you walk in it. And I'm doing it so that you don't mess it up. Because you will. Do you see the picture? God makes the covenant with Jesus, the son, not us. He takes us out and he does it between them. And then by faith, 
we get to come into it. All the benefits and all the promises. How can I be known for sure that God's going to give me his presence in his life, his power? How do I know the spirit of God is really going to change my heart? How do I know he's going to take down the Goliaths in my life? How do I know he's going to change me from the inside out and set me free of sin? How do I know? How do I know that he's going to walk me through every issue of life and it's all going to work out to the good? How do I know? God says, because I made a covenant. But guess what? I didn't make it with you. I made it with my son so it's 100% secure. And he did it perfectly all the way to the end. So, how's it all work then? Now I can open up the depths of my heart to God. I can repent and be healed and not be afraid anymore. If this is true, and he can never leave, and he can never forsake, and never reject, then I could come in even when I mess it all up and I blow it, and say, God, at the depths of my heart, this is not just remorse, this is a reality that I don't trust you. And I could be honest about it. I could actually show you right there in my heart. And I don't have to be afraid because you're bound to never leave me. You will always be with me. You will always be faithful to lead me through because you will not deny your son because your son fulfilled every term and condition of the covenants. Which means for the first time, I have the security I need to be intimate with God so I could repent in front of him and be healed of my brokenness. Oh, if you saw it, church, if you saw it, the joy, the freedom, the healing. We can finally take off all the masks and allow God to heal our hearts. Do you see it? And we don't just take off our mask in front of God. We can take off our mask in front of each other for the first time. Because no matter how you receive me or don't receive me, I'm in a covenant relationship with the Father where every term and condition has been fulfilled with Christ, where I can never be cast out as I come to him. Which means I have all the security I need to love you even when you don't love me. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And it's the only way that your heart can be healed. Stand with me. Stand with me. Hallelujah. Let me pray for you, and then we'll dismiss. Father, I lift up this church. And God, I am the first one to begin to say, God, under your security and under your covenant, I come asking for forgiveness. I ask for forgiveness over the sin of thinking that, God, when I fail or I don't make it or I don't, I'm not there, I don't measure up the way I think, that I somehow think that my sin is more powerful than this covenant. My failures are more powerful than your blood. My pride is more powerful that somehow my pride would make you reject me over what Christ has done in my behalf. And today I take a moment to say, God, we ask for forgiveness. And we come to you just naked, bearing our hearts, Lord. Saying, God, there's a lot of issues in here, but I thank you. That even though I see them and they scare the heck out of me, they think, oh, oh my gosh, if I saw them and God sees them, that God, God's provision is gone. God's plan for my life is gone. Lord, I pray that you would break that right now. And you would create that security around your people that says, no, you could bear it all. 
and I can heal you of it through real repentance. We could get to the root of these issues and you could be set free. Father, I pray that we would get it, that we'd understand how secure we really are in you. God, that we would grasp it for the first time and it would set your church free. Lord, there is a world waiting and watching and looking and saying, can I just see the church in all of its glory the way God always intended it? Can I see them in freedom and in joy and going to the ends of the earth with such a boldness in their hearts, not because they think they're great men of God and they're so amazing, but because they've seen this covenant and this relationship that's been established that's unchangeable through the blood of Christ. God, I lift up everybody in this room. I pray for parents who look back and they see all their regrets with their kids, Lord God, and feel like there's no hope. I pray today that they would understand, yes, there might be some wrong things in their pattern of parenting and there's some things that need to change, but I pray that they would see you're still with them. You're still with the kids because of this covenant. I pray for those who feel like they've tried something or done something and, and it didn't work out and they're just upset and they feel like, oh God, your plan did, what is this? I pray that they see your plan has not been aborted. You are still with them because of this covenant. I pray it would set your people free so that they could bear their hearts and be healed and to walk in the joy that you have for their lives. Lord, we thank you today. I thank you and I lift you up and praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's give a little one more round of applause. One more round of applause. Thank God. Thanks again for listening to our Springs Church podcast. For other exciting content from Springs Church, be sure to visit us online at springs.church. If you'd like to partner financially with Springs Church, you have the opportunity to give by visiting the Give tab of our website, springs.church.